Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we come together. We ask you to guide us and show us what you want us to see through this section of scriptures and anoint it and help us to understand your desires and will. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be starting at verse 10. Uh, Paul has been talking about the wickedness of the last days, uh, uh, talking about uh, all the sin that was going to be prevalent. We talked about that and saw that it looked just like our own days. I uh, talked about uh, the opposition against Moses and that there was a lot of folly manifest. And then we go into verse 10. But... And the reason I give us the previous, because when but comes in, that means something is changing. So verse 10, but you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch, at Lyconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And I'm going to stop there because this is very powerful. Uh, if we've read Book of Acts, you know this little bit of what he's been talking about on, on these activities. Those were some very interesting places where he was, was at. One of them stoned him. One of them chased him out of town. Uh, so he goes, you, again, talking to Timothy, you have fully known my doctrine. All right, and so he goes, you understand everything. You know me very well. Remember that Timothy was with Paul almost every place he went, uh, especially after, after a while. He, Timothy was his protege. He was the one that he was hand grooming to, to be able to take care of things. Uh, Timothy was often sent to troublesome churches that needed help and Paul couldn't Go, go there, so either Timothy or Titus would often be sent to these churches and they would spend months to a year or two getting them back into order and then they would come and find Paul wherever he was at. So he'd go, Timothy, you full well know. And what is he saying you know? First off, you know my doctrine. Now what was special about Paul's doctrine? That God had sent him to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And, you know, again, we don't fully comprehend what a big deal this was. Jesus initially preached to the Jewish people. Now, he went and talked to Samarians. He, he talked to the centurion. I mean, he was not just, I mean, you know his story. He didn't just talk to, to Jewish people, but his call before basically was to Jews. He's telling the Jews what they need. Uh, remember when Peter was called by God to go see Cornelius. The other disciples called him on the carpet, like, what do you think you're doing going to go see a Roman? All right? And he goes, this, look, look, this is what God showed me. He showed me this vision. He did, this is what he told me. He told me to go with him. This man was, saw a vision from God, and he got, and when he got saved, he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he you know, and he gives them all these things, and they're going, okay, well, who are we to fight against God? But even the disciples really did not want to go out and talk to Gentiles. They were Jews. Jew, you know, and Jews at, the, at that time believed that Gentiles had one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to feed the per fires of hell. They were born to die and go to hell. That was their opinion. All right? And that was the prejudice that the disciples came into 
starting Christianity with. You know, and we want to think of them as these guys without any problems. You know, they knew God's word. They, they loved everybody, and they, but they had great trouble. Now, they, as time went on, they went out and they preached to the Gentiles. Almost every one of them died someplace other than Palestine. Uh, we have Thomas, who went to India before he was, before he was uh, martyred. We have Peter being martyred in Rome. Uh, we have all these men being martyred all across, basically speaking to Gentiles. So eventually they got on board with God's call. But Paul, after his first missionary trip, was called on the carpet again by the, the rest of the disciples saying, hey, you know, who do you think you are preaching to all these Gentiles and they're getting saved and who, who do you think you are? We walked with Jesus. Who do you think you are? And he had to defend his calling to them. Now, I'm thankful that God called Paul and the other disciples eventually to go talk to Gentiles because I'm not a Jew. As far as I know, I don't have any Jewish blood in me. So I'm glad that God got them convinced to go speak to Gentiles. And that was what Paul says, my doctrine. I was called to go speak to Gentiles. What was the other part of his doctrine? Grace. That everything was based on grace. Because again, the disciples, even though they knew that Jesus died for the sins of the world and everything, they still struggled because they were Jews. And what does a Jew do? They went to the, they went, go to the temple or the synagogue. They go, to, they go to the sacrificial system. They keep God's laws. They keep his rules. All of these things that they do because that's who they are. And they struggled hard with this. You know, uh, they struggled with all these Gentiles becoming saved. And the first council of Jerusalem was the, gen the apostles getting together and saying, what do we require of these Gentiles coming into Christianity or the way at that time? They go, we've got all these Gentiles becoming followers of the way or Christianity, whichever term you want to use. And they go, what do we do with them? Do we make them become Jews? You know, do, do they have to start obeying the laws of, of Moses? Uh, do they have to start doing works? And they had to struggle with this. Their whole attitude was, you know, well, we gotta, they got to obey the laws. And they struggled with the, the, the concept of works and grace. That would have been one of the big debates. You know, do they need to be circumcised? Um, because originally when Christianity started, Rome considered it a Jewish sect. A Jewish rabbi had started it. Jewish men were preaching in it. Um, it was protected by the special protections of Judaism. And Judaism had a lot of special protections in Rome because they surrendered to Rome. And that gave them, they didn't make Rome conquer them. They surrendered and their only big statement was, we need to still practice our religion. So they had special circumstances built into their surrendering. And because they surrendered, they get to practice their religions. We're not going to make them worship Caesar. We're not going to make them worship the pantheon of the gods. They're going to be these really strange people that believe in one God. 
And that was part of the special way that happened. And now we, you may not be familiar with this, but Rome basically came in people, they'd send an embassy, uh, emissary to them and say, and, uh, surrender and we'll make things nice to you. If you don't, we'll conquer you and never, nothing will be nice for you. The, the Jews said, okay, we surrender the, as long as we can have our religion. And Christianity was covered by that covering for a long time. For the first 100 years or so of its establishment, it was considered Jewish. Now, the Jews did not consider them Jewish, but Rome considered them Jewish. And so they were protected. But now the disciples are going, okay, all these, pe all these Gentiles are becoming Christian. They're not Jews. What do we do with them? And circumcision was a big thing. Do we make them come to the temple three times a year? Uh, do they have to offer sacrifices? Do they have to, you know, offer the morning and evening uh, sacrifices? You know, what do we do with them? And if you want to go see the results, just go into Acts and read the, their decision. Basically, they said, no, the only thing we're going to require is that they don't eat, don't eat meat offered to gods, which Paul threw away. But they don't, uh, they don't commit fornication. And they, you know, and they had a several, several op options in there that were not that bad. Uh, but this is what it is. And Paul's saying, I'm teaching grace. I'm teaching grace, not this works system. And he understood salvation is by grace and the disciples originally st struggled with that they had to learn that whole idea that salvation was by grace all right so his next thing was and my manner of life it goes my conduct this is the conduct that i have all right and what was his conduct again if we go back to acts he would go into a city and his first witness would be to go to the synagogue. He would preach in the synagogue the good news of Jesus Christ. He would get rejected and he got rejected in every synagogue because it was so different they weren't ready to accept it. And then we'd take it to the Gentiles. But his, he had a love. He had a love for the Jewish people. And apparently he had a great love for others. And one of the things that we read in his, his great love for the, for the Jewish people was, and I can't remember which, which book he wrote it in, he goes, if I could die, if all the Jews could be saved and go to heaven, he goes, I would be willing to die and go to hell in their place. Now, I don't love anybody that much to make that statement, and I knew that he knew that it couldn't happen, but it does show you his love for his people. The Jewish people he's going if if I could just die and they would all go to heaven I would be willing to go to hell eternally in their place that's a lot of love I'm willing I'm willing to go and be a martyr but I'm not sure that I want to that I want to actually go to hell and you know for them so his conduct and his conduct was such that he said in most of the cases he said I did not take anything from you all I ministered to you I kept in there and he goes I was supported by other people I didn't didn't take anything from you and he and he was able to say I have not hurt anybody I've not taken anything from anybody that's quite a statement in and of itself because he could have pointed to the laborer is worthy of his hire he goes you all should have been paying me all right because I was ministering to you, I was building these churches, but he goes, I did not take anything from you. 
And in most of the places, he pointed out that while I was there, I labored as a, you know, and we find out that he was a tent maker uh, because that's what he tell, talks about when he talks about uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He goes, they are, Priscilla and, yeah, Priscilla and Aquila, they were tent makers. <laughs> and he goes, they're my co-laborers. All right. And so all of these things, he's talking about his conduct and his purpose. His big purpose was to preach the gospel. And he says, my faith, and literally in this case, it wasn't the word, uh, uh, excuse me, the next word, and his long-suffering, his patience. Apparently, Paul was very patient. Um, he spent years in, in many of these places. And it's kind of funny when, you know, when we read through the book of Acts, it sounds like all he did was all these exciting things. And we read the Gospels and we find out he spent six months here, a year here, two years here. You know, and we read in Book of Acts and there's like two events in the entire year that he's there. <laughs> and people will read and go, wow, Paul's life was so exciting. Look at all these things that happened. Yeah, his life was just like ours. Long periods where nothing seems to happen. And this is true of all the great leaders in the scriptures. Well, we read two or three events in their life and then we move to the next part of their, you know, next person's life. But, and then you read, oh, they were there for 30 years. Oh, three big things happened in 30 years. What does that mean? There's probably about 10 years in between each of the big things that happened to them. You know, and this is why we've got to be able to keep this in mind for our own lives because sometimes people complain over and over, it is just so boring. Why does God not do the things he used to do? You know, we look at this person and all that, the only thing that ever happened was all this excitement, bang, 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 nothing but excitement. Okay, the book of Acts covers about a 30-year period. There's a lot happening in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of time that's not represented in it. And we just read through the book of Acts and go, wow, look how exciting it was to live in, that, in the day of the first church. Yeah, and they had just the same problems we have. God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? Uh, we really want to see you move. And then all of a sudden he moves and things get excited and you end up surfing persecution for when he's moving. And then things kind of die down and become normal again. Uh, and this is what he's saying, my patience. Paul is saying, I spent all this time here just teaching, just ministering. And this is something, especially for pastors, we have to recognize we spend years investing in people's lives a lot of times. And then finally, a life changes. And somebody gets excited for God and move, moves forward. And it's like, all right, something, something good has finally happened. And then you spend a long time, months and months, and it seems like you're just preaching to the choir and nothing's happening. And, and, and then all of a sudden, things start moving again. And we need to understand this is how God works in all of our lives. You're reading the Bible, you're studying, you're preparing, you're wondering if anybody's ever caring about anything that you say, and then all of a sudden, somebody gets saved. Somebody's life gets changed by your witness. And you can say, wow, finally something's happened. Our patience is very important as we go out. And here's, you know, Paul telling Timothy, you know my my patience, my long stuff, and my charity, you know, his love, that literally charity is love, his love for the people, 
and my patience, my steadfast constance on it. Uh, now, Paul was somebody very special, apparently. Uh, he was kind of, a, you know, I, when I see that standard, it's kind of like me. Once I decide to do something, God has to almost get my, hit me over the head with a two-by-four to get me to stop. Because I just have that kind of, I'm going to move forward with it. I think Paul was that kind of man. This is what I think God wants me to do. God, I'm doing this unless you, you know, unless you make it very abundantly clear that I'm not doing it, this is where I'm going. All right? And, but he says, my steadfastness. And then he gets into the really wonderful things, the persecutions I went through. All right? Uh, Paul was persecuted. And we know this. We see his story on it. He's stoned. He's shipwrecked. He's, he's all these things that happened to him. And the afflictions, the enduring suffering is what that word literally means. Enduring. We do believe that when Paul was stoned, that he had some problems. He had long, even though it, he was either dead and resurrected or almost dead, we don't know. He's under a pile of rocks. The story that he tells us in Galatians makes, uh, in uh, Corinthians makes it seem like he was dead because he says, I know a man, he's speaking of himself, that went into the third heaven. Uh, so it apparently he was dead and resurrected, but apparently he suffered injury from that at that point in time and, and was suffering just from those type of injuries. So is there a rivalry James and Paul with, you know, very involved with the, this, this kind of conflict that we're talking about? Not so much. Because when you really read the book of James, you find out that James is not teaching works, but he is saying that you need works to prove. You know, he never says that you can't be saved without works. He just says you can't prove it. He goes, show me your, your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He wasn't saying you couldn't have faith without works, but I kind of agree with him. There's no way you can prove to me that you have a real honest faith if you're not serving God and, and producing works. You know, you may be saved, you may not be saved. It's not my place to judge. But his statement was if you don't have works then where is your faith? Alright? Uh, because there's no way you're going to be able to prove that you have faith without showing some form of works. And, uh, and we all tend to do that, make that judgment. You know, where is your faith? You know, you're looking at somebody and going, I haven't seen you do anything for God. You don't go to church. You don't apparently read your Bible. You don't, you don't pray. You know, where is your, the evidence of your works? And we have to be very careful because, yes, we're told to, you know, look for fruit. Uh, there should be fruit. There should be works in somebody who is a true follower of God. But just because we don't see it does not mean there's no works. All right, and that's the critical thing. I've dealt with people where I've known somebody long ago, and I know that they've got, they showed all the works of being saved and somehow fell away from that strong works. And people look at them going, I don't see any evidence that they're saved. I'm going, well, I know I used to see it, so I don't, I don't know where to tell you. It was the one I saw faults and just because they were strong in personality or is what you're seeing true, and it's not my job not my job. I can tell you that if I do not see works in somebody's life, I tend to treat them as if they're lost and, and give them more gospel 
gospel-oriented messages. All right, if I see the works, okay, good. In that context, what qualifies as works? What do you think they're talking about? Being faithful, praying, reading their Bible, uh, giving a giving a gospel message, anything that shows a commitment to com- commitment to faith. It can be any number of things. It could be service, you know, because sometimes people's gifts are just service. I am somebody that's going to, you know, I, I can't really talk to people, but I'm going to make sure that the church is well maintained because I, I, I'm a carpenter, I'm a bricklayer, I'm a, I'm a gardener, whatever, and that is my really good skill, and I'll make sure that you don't have to spend money in those so that you can be able to use money in other places. That could be what it is. There are people that their gift is just service. Then now, it should go out beyond that as well, but their primary gift will be services. There are some people that are just givers. You know, they'll give and give and give. There are people who are actually teachers and evangelists. Uh, my gift is teaching primarily. I still have to do evangelism. My gift is not evangelism, but I evangelize. I have a friend who is an extreme evangelist. Everything is geared toward evangelism. And he's not really a teacher, even though he is a pastor and teaches, he's mostly an evangelist. All right, so we all have a different gift, and that gift will be uh, shown in different ways. Prayer warriors are probably the hardest ones to see in a, in a church, because usually they're praying on their knees at home. Now, I've heard some people go, well, I'm a prayer warrior. And I'm going, well, what prayers have been answered recently? Well, I don't know, I just pray a lot. I don't think you're a prayer warrior then. You may pray a lot, but a prayer warrior gets their prayers answered. If you're a true prayer warrior, you're the one people want to go, I need you praying for me. <laughs> Your prayers get answered. I want, I want you to be praying for me. You know, uh, and uh, this is important because there are prayer warriors. I've met, I've met a handful of prayer warriors that when they pray, something about their prayers, their expectations, I don't know what it is, but their prayers get answered. You know, it's just their gifted area. And they don't get seen a lot in the church because they're kind of in the background, but people do know. I asked them to pray. They prayed, and it got answered. Prayer warriors kind of get ratted out after a while. <laughs> you know, you get to find out who the prayer warriors are because people will say, you know, I asked Brother, Brother George over there to pray for me, and, and I got and, and I got answered within, within a couple days. You know, I asked Brother George to pray for a job, and I got a job three days later. You know, so the testimony of people kind of rat out the prayer warriors after a while, and they get to be known. Um, But somebody who says, well, I'm a prayer warrior, and you go, how many prayers have been answered? And, well, I don't know of any. Then don't tell me you're a prayer warrior. You may spend a lot of time on your knees, but, you know, I guess you're talking to the ceiling or something. But, you know, uh, so... But this is kind of what works are. We don't know. Every individual is going to have a different work in their life revealing their patience, their endurance, their strengths, where, where they're at. Um, and Paul said, and you know the persecutions and afflictions which came to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. All right? So these are three big cities that he went to. Antioch's where he started. <laughs> but Antioch is also where he had a hard time convincing everybody that he was saved. Okay, Antioch was the first church he went to when he got, went to Damascus and got 
and got converted on the road to, to Damascus, he did not immediately go to Jerusalem because, number one, he, having changed to be a Christian, the J Jewish leaders would be out to get him, and he wouldn't have had the, the apostles leading, le leaning toward him. So he went to Antioch, where Barnabas and other people were leading that church, and they eventually accepted him. Because you know, you've got to understand, this would have been a hard thing. The man who has been sent to kill Christians wants to be part of our group. Uh, and we all laugh about that because we know exactly what we would be thinking. Uh, who's that at the door? The guy that wants to kill? No, 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 no. We're not letting him anywhere. We're not going to let him know our membership list and who's, who's coming into the church. No way. But he finally convinced them. He finally convinced them that he had been changed. And so he started with the persecutions in Antioch and then these other places where he had problems. And he says, and what, per what persecutions I endured. And now we have the word but again. But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. The Lord rescued me. Now, this is something that is interesting because his rescue was sometimes having a ship sink underneath him. Sometimes it was being stoned. Sometimes it was being chased out of town. You know, his definition of rescue is not necessarily the, rescue, the definition most of us would have been looking for rescue. Uh, and it's very interesting to me how many Christians want a victorious Christian life. But what do they mean by victorious? No problems. I don't want any problems, but I want to live in victory. The problem is you cannot have victory without a trial to be victorious over. Uh, but most of us don't want the trial to be victorious, but we want to be victorious. All right, I'm going to go out on the football field. The team is playing Friday. I'm going to go out on Wednesday, and I'm going to win the game. There's no team out there to play against. Well, I'm going to win the game. I'm going to cross the touchdown. I'm going to get into the end zone 12 times, and there's, there's nobody's going to be there to stop me. I'm going to have all those points, and nobody's going to, nobody's going to stop me. I'm going to win the game. All right, that's fine, but do it on Friday when the, when, the, when the opponent is out there on that football field, or Saturday if you're in college, or Wednesday, Sunday if you're in the pros. You know, Get out there when the opponent is out there and be victorious. And Paul is saying, God has delivered me from all my trials. He has made me victorious. He has brought in a winning of people. And over and over again, he saw God moving, putting him in the right place, seeing people getting saved. And as he's out there leading people to Christ, we've got this whole process of as he's going out there doing this, Others are making life difficult for him. Everywhere he went, he would start preaching the gospel message and grace message. And even, sometimes while he was still there or just after he left, we had the Judaizers coming. And the Judaizers had a simple message that they would come in. Hey, Paul's message was really good, but he didn't give you the whole story. You know, you now have to keep the law of Moses. You have to get circumcised. You have to go to the temple three times a year because that is what it means to be a follower of a Jewish sect. 
and they would come in and try to bring law into their into their into their being and get them away from grace and their message sounded wonderful <laughs> to them it just wasn't an actual message that, that God was was teaching so and God delivered him verse 12 yea and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived but continue you in the things which you have learned and have been assured of knowing of whom you have learned them and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus so yea all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution now this is the proof this is the crazy verse that very few Christians want to believe and want to accept if we live as Christians we will suffer persecution now in America we have been very very fortunate we have been in a Christian environment over for most of the years we have not suffered great persecution in America now there are places in the world where if you're a Christian your lifespan is probably less than a year or two because there's that much persecution on it and they're still facing martyrdom it is changing in America when we will face this kind of persecution I don't know but we need to be ready for this kind of persecution because it is promised to us Jesus said they hated me they will hate you all right and there have been times in America when Christians have suffered not with their life but suffered various other areas in their in their life but I think it's coming real soon that we may end up in prison we may end up being martyred for our beliefs even in America because God has promised persecution this country has had almost a 400 year span without persecution because of our foundation but it is coming part of our surrender is that we get to keep our religion to the Romans yeah to the Romans yeah well that was their ultimate the Jewish ultimate the, the Jewish condition of surrender to the Romans but in our day and age we're getting even worse if you listen very carefully to the language of our leaders the Constitution says that we have the freedom of religion if you listen to our leaders they will say we have the freedom to worship and you're going well what's the difference religion is how I live my life 24 7 worship is what do I do inside these church walls or what do I do inside my own home but don't dare take it out into the real world and they want to say we have the freedom to worship and that's a big difference that is not what the Constitution says the Constitution says I have the right to religion to take my beliefs outside the walls of the church outside of my home and practice what I believe so there's a huge difference between the two and again I, I challenge you listen if you're watching news and you're listening to these people listen and you're gonna hear them talk about the freedom of worship not the freedom of religion and it's a subtle difference and most people aren't catching it but it's a big difference in what they believe 
You know, they'll say, well, you can do anything you want in your church. You can believe that homosexuality is a sin. You can believe that, that marriage is between man and woman. You can believe this, that, or the other thing, but don't dare apply it to your business place. Do not dare say it outside the walls of your church. Don't dare say it outside your home because now you're going to be you know, crossing the political realm and not doing what is politically correct and we're going to come and get you. And just be aware. The stage is being set. Watch and listen to what these guys say. You know, because it is critical what they say. Words mean things. And it's very important that we understand the words that they say. When they use words, you know, the, the word tolerance is one of the greatest examples on how it has changed over the years. Everybody in this room is old enough to remember that tolerance basically meant you can believe what you want and I'm going to give you the right to believe what you want. It's wrong, but you can go ahead and believe it. Today, tolerance means that I have to say what you believe is equal to what I believe. It's a big difference. This is what's being taught in school. This is what's being taught in college. This is what, when you hear a younger person, probably under 40, that says the word tolerance, they do not mean the same thing we do of this older generation. They mean, yeah, you, you can believe what you want and because there's no, there's no absolute truth, then your truth is equal to my truth and, there is, you know, and I'm just going to tolerate you. Which means today the worst thing they can call you is intolerant. You know, and when I was in school back in, the, back in the 90s for my second degree, they go, well, you're intolerant. I go, thank you very much. You know, they had just said, you, you know, the worst thing they could possibly say to me, you're intolerant. I'm going, thank you. I believe in absolute authority and absolute truth, so you're right. I am intolerant by your definition. And so Christians have moved from some of the most tolerant people by our definition. You have the right to be wrong. And if you want to be wrong, that's fine. To the most intolerant people, because I'm not going to say that your belief is equal to my belief, because God teaches truth. And so, you know, I love being able to turn it back onto them. You know, they, they use this and say, well, you're intolerant. Thank you. You're absolutely right. I am. You know, you don't believe the way we do. You're right. I don't believe the way you do. I believe what God says. You know, we need to not be afraid of what they call us and what they say, because if we're standing for God, there'll be persecution. There will be attacks. And these attacks are going to do nothing but increase as we go forward because the world does not believe in what God says. And because they don't believe what God says, they're going to say, well, you can't tell me what God says. So this is, but this is very important for us. Are we ready for these kind of an attack? Am I going to believe in absolute truth and I'm going to hold absolute truth? You know, because they are so funny when they say that there is no absolute truth. I love it when people say that. Because I'll ask you, are you absolutely sure that there is no absolute truth? And they'll look at me like I'm what? I'm going, you just made an absolute truth claim that there is no absolute truth. So if there is no absolute truth, then your statement is wrong because you made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. So therefore, your statement is a lie. There is at least one absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. And it's like, you can't have it both ways. You know, and this is what is important for us. Can we make present the arguments? When you get away from truth, you end up with convoluted thought processes. 
And this is what is important for us. We know that when they get away from truth, there's no concrete footing to go in. They're standing in quicksand and can't navigate it because there is nothing to stand on. We are on the rock of God's truth. So we just stand on God's truth. We may not have all the answers, but we stand on God's truth and we go, this is what God says. And if we know what we believe, we know why we believe it, we have the answers. And we give them the best answer we can and watch them struggle. It is fun to watch these people who do not believe in, in truth, do not believe in God, and watch them struggle when their lies start falling apart. You know, you go to an evolutionist and you start presenting the case against evolution by basing it in truth, and they look at you like, I have no answers, this doesn't make any sense. You're, you're, you're presenting things I've never thought of because nobody's dared teach me truth and, and you're asking me questions that I don't know and I've never even thought about asking. You know, and we talk about what happens after this life. Well, you talk to an atheist and what is their answer? Well, we, we're just over and we're warm food. Well, I'm wonder, wonderful. What a sad life you live. No, it's wonderful. We could, we could do, but no, when your life is over, it's done and, you're, and there's nothing that matters. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you do. But they want it to not matter. Because if it matters, then they have, they're accountable to God. They're accountable to a creator. They're accountable to somebody and they don't want that to be the case. So they like the idea that there's nothing to be accountable to. So, um, and he says, all that live godly in Christ shall suffer. Then he goes again, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Goes back to the first part of this, this chapter that he's talking about. Evil is going to keep getting worse. And we've been watching it over time until there's a revival, sin gets more and more evil and the only thing that rescues it is a revival we've seen it all through scriptures more and more evil more and more evil and then a revival return resetting without a revival there is no reset and as we've talked about we are apparently from all signs at the end days could there be a revival absolutely god's more than capable of doing a revival if he does a revival We'll get a 50 to 70 year reprieve and it pushes on way back beyond our generation and way back for our kids our grandkids will be in trouble but there you know there's going to be these revivals that happen will there be a revival i don't know if there isn't we're at the end days and the rapture is around the corner if there's a revival there'll be a short reprieve a revival would turn more people to god and, and actually change things I mean, we're talking about a revival, not just four or five people getting saved, but a revival. Like in, Hezekiah, like in Hezekiah's day where thousands of people turned during the great, great awakening when thousands in America was totally turned to a Christian nation overall. All right. So this is what we're talking about, a revival, not just, you know, one church getting, you know, one town and getting excited and having a bunch of people, hundreds of people getting saved, but a big revival that turns a nation's heart to God. And if that happens, we could see God saying, okay, we're going to hold off because my people are humbling themselves. My people are making a change in, their, in what's going on. And this is what would stop and put a pause in what's going on. Do I expect it? 
Not necessarily, but no great revival is ever expected revival. And I've said, you know, I've said this, if you study revivals, you'll see this to be true. Every generation where there was a revival, the Christian leaders and everybody saying, we're so bad, we've got to be judged and there's no hope for us and, and it's gonna end. And uh, so things are gonna get worse and worse. And Paul understood this is what the nature of sin is. Sin always goes from worse to worse. And this is how he ends this, this statement. And we're going to end here with the power outages going on. So we're going to close a prayer and finish this up next week. Lord, we ask you to just bless us as we go forward. Help us to see you in all that we do. And thank you and cover us as we brave the storm to go home. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes. And the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.